Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Amen. You are listening to the voice of James Earl Jones. Unmistakable. Revelations chapter 4, verse 11. The voice of Darth Vader. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Welcome to Trending. And can't think of a much more resonant voice to set the tone for the topic that we're going to talk about today. This is an out-of-this-world show. Had to do the puns. The mom and me had to do it. And there is another James that has been in the news lately that has been inspiring us to contemplate the cosmos, and that is the James Webb Telescope. Absolutely dazzling images, celestial pictures of space showing us the deepest infrared image of the distant universe yet. This represents thousands of galaxies. So you think of it, humankind has never seen some of these faint far-off systems before. And it makes you wonder if more people would contemplate these images, I feel like there would be fewer atheists and more philosophers. And there's a great article by Dr. Jared Stott. He's from the Augustine Institute in which he asserts this. It's really mind-boggling just to contemplate. He says, there's a link between the two. The soil that God used to make us literally derives from stardust. Everything in the universe does. But the stars stand for something more than the building blocks of the universe. They are a witness and a call to the fact that we are more than simply dirt. We were made for an eternal purpose, and only that will make us happy. So we think of Psalm 19, which has been called the astronomer's song, the heavens declare the glory of God. The James Webb Telescope is representative of an area and discovery that has just been accelerating exponentially in the last century, and I think animating that psalm. So today on the show, we are going to do a deep space dive into that and more. And you think of, again, this telescope and the discoveries and what is next. In just the 21st century alone, computers are getting faster and more powerful. Digital cameras, remember when they first emerged and the pixelated images and now how clear they are just even on our phones. So with that, you scale it to NASA, you scale it to what they're able to do to process data, disk and, and memory space. In addition to that, 
ground-based telescopes and how powerful they are. And so I was reading a statistic that since the start of the 21st century, we are collecting 430 times more information per night, every single night than we did before. And one night you could almost gather as much information as was required over two years previously. So when you consider that, I think if anything, these things teach us that we yet have so much to learn. And that is why humility, as we hear, is crucial in our conversation today as we dare to approach God's immense, beautiful creation. And have you ever, in that contemplation, considered the possibility of extraterrestrials? What do we do with that? What category does a Catholic put that in? Is that demonic? Is that tinfoil hat territory? What have theologians through the centuries and church fathers had to say about that? Well, of all the modern scholars versed on this topic, Dr. Paul Thigpen is, I think, eminently qualified to instruct us on Catholic thought as it relates to the universe. So we are going to unpack all of this. He has a brand new book that takes us both out into the galaxy, into the cosmos, and back through the centuries to revisit the writings, the works of the greatest minds in physics, philosophy, astronomy, and perhaps most important, most important of all, as it relates to today's show, religious cosmology, the, the theology of, of space and understanding this through the mind of the church. So joining me now is the author of that beautiful book. The title is called Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Catholic Faith, Are We Alone in the Universe with God and the Angels? I believe it's 59th book. Dr. Paul Thigpen, welcome to the show. Brooke, thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. I just, I think it's really nice that NASA coincided the James Webb images with your book release. <laughs> they did, and and also, uh, you know, congressional hearings about UFOs. It's, it was pretty nice. I think it. Yes, that worked out really well. Yeah, it's very yeah. timely. I mean, what a topic! And this, I know. I suppose may seem like a departure, but I know it's something that you've been involved in for many years. So in this book project, was it exciting or was it intimidating for you to write about? Oh, it was exciting. I've, um, <clears throat> excuse me, ever since my, my youth have been interested in that possibility. Could there be uh, intelligent extraterrestrial life aside from us? And uh, <clears throat> I'm a, you know, a lot of folks might not know that I actually became an atheist at the age of 12 and so for six years, during those formative years, was an atheist, had some a dramatic conversion experience at the end of my senior year of high school. And once I came into the faith, or back to the faith, I guess I'd had a childhood faith when I was younger, um, because this issue was important to me, I thought, now, I wonder how we think about this in light of Christian faith. And then many years later, I became Catholic. And I've continued to think that. And it was actually, um, gosh, probably eight years ago, I was in an editorial retreat for Tam Books, which is the publisher of the book. And uh, Connor Gallagher is the, <clears throat> the publisher, good friends we are. And we were walking along the beach at Myrtle Beach. And I remember I, I saw something in the sky, and I just thought, you know, he's going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to tell him. You know, Connor, I'm, I've always wanted to write a book about extraterrestrial intelligence and the Catholic faith. And he looks at me and says, do it. I'll publish it. <laughs> and <clears throat> there just wasn't time. Uh, for, for, you know, some years. But then a couple of years ago, um, we'll go into to this too much, but uh, where the New York Times finally began to, to break a story and followed up on it of things that were being seen in the skies that the Pentagon was finally admitting, you know, we, we can't account for. Um, 
I thought, okay, now's the time to do this. And I started working on it in earnest. Uh, so it's been a couple of years. And again, the book is not about UFOs. Um, my friend Connor said, Paul, if you write about this subject, you've got to write something about UFOs. So I made an appendix at the end, about 7,000 words. But it's really about the Catholic faith and how it, I, I believe, could easily accommodate the discovery that there is extraterrestrial intelligence. It's really a tremendous work because you are essentially condensing 25, 26 centuries of of Christian thought, Catholic thought on this, and some Protestant thought as well. I think you do a really good job of just taking the spectrum and over time what was said from famous saints to, of course, astronomers and, and great thinkers. And in the book, you lay out your primary goal, your your own theological orientation, which you gave us an introduction to just there. But can you give us a basic summary of that? What what was your goal in writing this book? Well, <clears throat> the reason it was prompted by some of the things going on with the Pentagon kind of saying, yeah, those things are up there. We're not sure what they are. Um, there's been a revival of interest in the topic in a lot of circles. And one of the things you see when you uh, look at the history of this, I, and by the way, my, my, my discipline in my PhD is historical theology. So that means whenever you try to write theological essay of any kind, you start out with the history of that topic and what people have thought about in the past. I, I like to say it's, because um, some folks want to know why it's so much of the book history. I like to say if you were at a party and you walked up to a group of folks talking and they were about something talking about something you're very excited about and then you just jumped in and started saying all the things you think i can just imagine people saying, well yeah this guy just said that five minutes ago or yes well that was already ruled out you know 10 minutes ago and finally just say you know you probably shouldn't get into the conversation until you've heard what's gone before in the conversation and that's how it is with a topic like this so uh 25 centuries as you said uh looking at that and one of the things you find is that several beginning several centuries back you had uh, adversaries of the Catholic Church and of the Christian faith in general begin to claim very loudly that uh, that they thought extraterrestrial intelligence existed and that that disproved the Christian faith, and specifically the Catholic faith. You had people like Thomas Paine, the, the great uh, pamphleteer of the American Revolution. He was British, but his Age of Reason and, and other things helped to spur the American Revolution. Um, you have, So you had skeptics like him, and we still do, and then you have other folks who maybe more of a new age slant who say, yes, um, actually there are, they're out there, they're space brothers and they know the true religion and, and they want to reveal to us the religion is true because our religions are false. So you've got those two kind of folks, you know, making those claims. And first of all, you, you know, just here in the course of, of the day or research, but if there ever, you know, if we get to a place and I think we could soon where the government finally says, Pentagon says, well, is a little bit of what we know. They won't tell us all because of national security issues, but that if it should happen, a disclosure or a discovery, perhaps even by scientists who are now looking into it, you guess there are, there is intelligent race out there that's not human. I don't want Catholics to be caught, you know, off guard by that and say, oh my gosh, it does, does this disprove my faith? Like they're saying, um, I've never thought about it. How does this fit into my faith? I want them to be able to say, Sure, it could fit into my faith, and, and here's how. And if somebody challenges me that way, I'll say, here, read this book. <laughs> so that's really what the book is. It's, in a sense, it's a Catholic apologetics book. And one of the disciplines you specialize in is apologetics. And I really, as I began to read it, thought this is a, a wonderful book of Catholic apologetics. And because, as you said, when or if 
probably we most likely will be when we are confronted with this, it gives us a basis. And you open right in the first chapter that this is a conversation that has been going on since time immemorial to ponder the power of God, to ask, is there one world or many, is one of the most wondrous and noble questions. That's what you quote with St. Albert the Great. And obviously, there is a staggering body of work that you've collected, so there's no way that we can examine every insight and, and comb through every quote. So if you could just maybe give us a highlight reel of some of the biggest points, for example, the idea of if we are created in the image and likeness of God, and this alien or intelligent life form or species doesn't look like Adam, doesn't look like man, where does that leave us? All of these things have been discussed and worked out over the century. So maybe just a few nuggets of highlights there. Sure. Well, let's let's start with that question. And that's one of the things I loved about writing the book is that it, when you consider this topic, for a lot of folks, you know, I had someone on another radio podcast the other day say, uh, why would a Catholic radio station even talk about this subject? And, okay, I understand, you know, the question. Um, but, the, but the thing is, Catholic thinkers for 2,000 years have thought about this, this uh, very seriously. And one of the reasons, um, one of the good things about it is that it presses you as you get into it deeply um, to, to understand better our faith. When you, so, for instance, the first question that you begin to ask when you think about what you just said is, well, what is the image of God? What what is it, and could another race have it? And that depends on how how we define it, and what does the church mean? So, for instance, if uh, if we define, you often hear image of God defined as uh, a rational will. I mean, uh, sorry, a, a rational intellect and a free will. And I would say there's actually more. Um, there's a passage in Sirach that points that direction, and and that is that also an immortal soul. That uh, for somebody to be made in the image of God, they also reflect his immortality at least going forward. And if those are the criteria, then I would say it, it, it is possible to imagine another race that fits those criteria, even though it look may, may look very different from us. Um, but that's just, you know, one of the questions. You've got all kinds of questions. Uh, could, could they be in the image of God? Would they be fallen or unfallen? If so, uh, what plans of redemption might God have for them? So much right. of the book opens up possibilities rather than saying this is how it's got to be. Right, because you have, I think it's it's kind of like a thesis of, of William Voralong, who concluded that since ETI, which is extraterrestrial intelligence, so that's one vocab word that we'll be mentioning, wouldn't be descendants of Adam. They would be without original sin, inherited for him, but even if they did, Christ's incarnation and redemptive sacrifice could provide them redemption you know, that that sacrifice here on earth. But then wasn't it Aquinas that questioned if multiple incarnations could take place? Yeah, he, he asked that question. Now, you know, Aquinas uh, and most theologians at that time were still kind of laboring under, I mean, they received a lot of good stuff from Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, but they were still laboring under Aristotelian science, if you can call it that, or at least cosmology, how they saw the universe. And Part of that notion was the Earth is the center of the universe, and there are four elements, and <clears throat> the heaviest element, Earth, all kind of sinks down to, to create our planet, into our planet. And also that um, the philosophical notion that perfection would be only one, so since God's perfect, he wouldn't make more than one. Um, wasn't even dealing so much with you know the notion, as we would think of it, extraterrestrial intelligence on another planet within this universe. Um, but... Interesting enough, with, with St. Thomas, 
he does touch on several issues. He addresses several questions that have uh, implications for this. Uh, and one of those, well, first of all, is that he, he allowed for the possibility that the stars themselves might be animated, that they might have some kind of living intelligent force um, that are part of them. So in a way, you could say, okay, he does, in a sense, he, he allowed for the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence. But more specifically, more directly, he uh, he addressed the question, could God have, could the Son of God be incarnate more than once? And because he did not have in view races on other planets because of his, you know, his fundamental assumptions about the universe. Um, he was just thinking about the human race. But even with the human race, he said, yes, of course, God's all-powerful. He could do that. Now, he said he didn't do it, as it turns out. And, and the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the one incarnation for us. But the fact that he, he just makes the argument, yeah, that the one same one Son of God eternally divine, you know, and uh, the father that he, yeah, he's God. He could take on more than one created nature. So that, that kind of opens up the possibility, you know, somewhere else uh, in ours. In, do, in you ours worry, do you worry with how the the culture is that, that even presenting the question will cause an existential crisis, that, that it will cause people to fear? Because that's been one of the theories why, if there is evidence that there have been discoveries or uh, that there's been intelligent life here on Earth that's been recovered in some way, that it would cause some sort of crisis for humankind. Is, is that a worry? I think what you're setting up here is this has already been talked about and for Christians it should in some ways perhaps give us consolation. Yeah, you know, there's, I mean, some more recent history that, uh, you know, bears on this directly. That is back in the 1940s uh, during World War II, uh, there began to be a number of, uh, of UFO sightings that more than before. Now we've had the equivalent of UFO sightings for centuries, but, uh, starting with the so-called food fighters. They were these balls of light that would show up alongside pilots in World War II, both in the Allied side and on the Axis side. And they each thought it was some kind of high-tech stuff going on from the enemy. Uh, but then after the war, even then, you began to have uh, the incident Roswell. I won't go into all that. But you began to have all kinds of things that were hard to, you know, kind of hard to deal with. Um, you had uh, one flapper, a whole bunch of these things flew over Washington, D.C. at night and were chased by jet pilots. You had a similar thing happen in Los Angeles. Uh, and people began to, to wonder about it. And up until this time, when you look at the history of it, um, most folks in Western culture had said, this is a reasonable question to ask. There's you know, nothing wrong with this. <laughs> it's not silly at all. It's a serious thing. But what happened at that time, and we now know from Freedom of Information Act documents uh, obtained through that, that the, the the Pentagon of the government as a whole made a, a decision that um, for the sake of national security, that they thought uh, people focusing on this could somehow make an opening for the Russians to, to do things in the sky, that they would um, actually subject subject people who talked about this to ridicule um, and dismissal and actually influence the, the media to do the same. So that you have this, historical anomaly in itself that up for 25 centuries you've got people saying this is a serious topic let's talk about it and lots of christians saying oh yeah i think it could be and we get to starting in the 40s american culture begins to say no this is crazy and it's influenced by the media the government has, has done that um so all that's that's to say that 
that kind of set us up for um, for people to to think this this would be earth shattering news. This would you know terrify everybody. And it was in fact the, the Brookings Institute was a think tank that was hired by NASA back in 1960. I think that's the right year too. Um, to give a report on what we might do with information we get from, from NASA and from study of the sky. And there's a short section at the end of that where they actually say, you know, look back in history when the Europeans came to Mexico and the Aztecs, they just destroyed their culture and ruined their religion and all that. And there was panic and social uh, upheaval if uh, that could happen this time. And so if we ever find this kind of stuff, uh, it, it should be up to the government scientists and scientists whether they even decide to let people, the public, know. Mm. That's been used as one of the justifications by the, the government ever since to, to try to sit on what it knows. And um, But the thing is, that all the sociological surveys that have been done in recent years show that you know, most people of deep faith, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, others, they all say, no, that wouldn't destroy my faith. It wouldn't undermine my faith. I have a lot to learn about it, but it wouldn't. And I'm, I'm of that, you know, of that thought, especially now we've had a generation where even though the news media has poo-pooed the subject, our imaginations have been opened up by the entertainment media. And, um, and so what I find, for instance, is it's, it's kind of interesting. People my age, I'm 68, people around my age, when they ask me, Paul, what have you been writing about? And I'll say, well... You know, okay, here it goes. Extraterrestrial intelligence of the Catholic faith. And they often would just stare at me and say, why would you write about that? <laughs> but if the person is 35 or younger, almost inevitably, as soon as I tell them, they say, when can I read the book? <laughs> and um, there's kind of a demographic divide there. So all that's to say, I really don't think it would cause social panic. I mean, unless something showed up that was obviously hostile, you know, big crap to carry over major cities and firing on the White House or whatever. <laughs> Kind of like Independence Day. Yeah, then people right. would be scared, but they'd be, yeah. But to, and yeah, those sure, are, that's a long answer to your question, but yeah, and those I don't are, think it, those are the images that we see. And when you were talking about World War II and pilots seeing things in the sky, it made me think of a quote you have from the Flying Padre, who, as tradition says, he was Padre Pio in the sky and pilots saw him. And he commented that you put this in the book, the Lord certainly did not limit his glory to this small earth. On other planets, other beings exist who did not sin and fall as we did. So was that revelation? Was that musing? We don't know. We have to take a quick break. The book, the name of the book, brand new, Extraterrestrial Intelligence in the Catholic Faith, Are We Alone in the Universe with God and the Angels? Dr. Paul Thigpen is an internationally known speaker, bestselling author, and journalist. He has published 59 books, including the Manual for Spiritual Warfare. It is in our bookcase. It's a well-loved classic in our home. His work has been circulated worldwide and translated into 16 languages. And he is with us today. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory here on Relevant Radio. Stay with us. Phone, phone, phone. 
Oh, is that a classic? Can you believe the movie E.T. is 40 years old? Wow. I couldn't believe that when I looked that up. But I, of course, that that voice, that little cute E.T. voice produced, directed by Steven Spielberg. Yes, it was first released in it was 1982 and the idea of extraterrestrials has has captivated our imagination not just since the cinema but obviously for centuries as we're hearing about have you ever heard of the drake equation that is a measurement that calculates the probability of us making contact with other intelligent life in our galaxy in the milky way how are catholics called to approach this does our faith allow room to believe in the existence of extraterrestrial intelligent life and that is the topic of the show today welcome back to trending my name is brooke taylor in for timory joined by dr paul thigpen his new book is extraterrestrial intelligence in the catholic faith are we alone in the universe with God and the angels? And Paul, just fantastic to hear in the first portion of our conversation, the centuries of documented text and writings on the saints and scholars and physicists and astronomers. But there are so many things, so it's difficult because we're spanning the centuries here as well as up through the universe. But one thing I do want to ask about is, I guess one of the worries I have, like anything, is taking something too far. I remember in my early radio days, I would go into work at a morning show, and on the way, I would listen. There was an overnight show called Coast to Coast with Art Bell, and, and I'm not even sure. I don't think it's on the air anymore. I know that Art Bell has, has since died, but it was a national program dedicated to, to this topic of paranormal activity, aliens, UFOs, and I didn't listen often because even at that time, I wasn't practicing my faith as well as I should have been. I wasn't well catechized, but there was something within me that I just thought, I don't want to open the door to this. But I remember even a few times listening that the callers were very intelligent. They sounded very normal. Sometimes they they even were strong Christian. So I suppose my question is, we know that in what you have shared and what we have observed, that God can do anything. He is creation, the omnipotent supreme being. But we also know there is diabolical uh, entities as well. There is the demonic that is in the spiritual warfare realm. So in some cases, those that are interested in, in astrobiology or extraterrestrials, like anything, it can be taken to an extreme. And there's a lot of content out there. There are books, there are YouTube channels that are atheistic that are anti-christian in nature is it is it spiritually safe to venture out into this space i guess literally and, and figuratively great question you know and i um i'm certainly aware of of the audience that you're talking about and uh you know some folks out there that claim we've actually got this that we're actually reptilian hybrids <laughs> you know, that kind of yes stuff. um so I, I would say that first of all that and this is one of the you know, questions I often get is, well, isn't this, a lot of folks, and I'm, you're not saying this, but some folks will say, isn't it all demonic? And I think it's, you know, I talk about that in the book. It's real important to, to realize that I agree that there are some experiences related to UFOs or the claims of alien abduction um, that sure seem to parallel uh, what the church has seen as diabolical. Uh, the, the figures people are, are seeing, the apparitions may look like, you know, E.T. <laughs> uh, instead of looking like demons. But, uh, you know, where you have, where people claim that they've been abducted against their will, where they've been physically harmed, even sexually assaulted, 
Uh, and then especially somewhere the, the beings will tell them we're going to give you the true, the true religion. We've read that in history before. Um, so I don't want anybody to think that I rule that out altogether. There are certainly cases that sure seem to me to be uh, diabolically inspired. And even secular observers who, who aren't Christians have, have noted the parallel. Uh, at the same time, most of the UFO sightings um, don't fit that pattern at all. You know, they're not um, – there's, there's no sense of malice or hostility. Um, and many times there seem to be physical traces of things that um, – I mean, the, our audience tonight will probably bog in this, but uh, <clears throat> there have been people kind of on the inside of government who are now speaking publicly – who claim that the government has crashed uh, UFO materials that they've retrieved and are working on to try to uh, reverse engineer. I know that sounds wild, but if you actually look, you know, read into it, you'll see that there's the evidence is, I think, pretty good for that, at least from personal testimony. But all that's to say that there are things that seem to be nuts and bolts kind of craft. I mean, they're not really nuts and bolts, but physical. And you'd have to, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to say, you know, that's demonic. It doesn't act demonic. Um, demons don't need craft to get around. Um, I think it's a too broad a brush to just kind of say it's all the money. But I agree with you that you do have to be careful. There are rabbit holes you can go down. Um, you can't take everything that someone said. There's one person that used to be high up in the CIA, and you know he claims this whole thing about reptilian hybrids and stuff. And uh, so you always have to look at it in light of the faith and what we do know. And that's one reason for the book is that if if people are going to you know, there may be folks who never even want to think about the subject. That's fine. If things continue with the congressional hearings and stuff, they may end up having to think about it some. And if so, I want them to be able to to read, you know, someone who I believe I'm a faithful Catholic. Um, I know the tradition well. I know our, our church is teaching well. To be able to say, look, it's it's not something that you need to fear, and you don't need to fear people saying that this undermines your, your faith. Here is how the Catholic Church could could accommodate that. The same way we accommodated the so-called Copernican Revolution, where the church, uh, not not officially, I'm not saying change dogma, because that's the other thing we need to say. The church has no defined dogma on this, this issue. In fact, before Vatican II, um, when the Vatican sent out a survey to bishops around the world asking them what questions would you like to see this ecumenical council address, um, the Archbishop of New York actually at that time actually said, I think we need to give some kind of statement on extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, as we know, Vatican II did not. And it may be very well because uh, for the same reason the church hadn't said anything before or since officially about this, because we, it's a question we, we can't answer. And in, in some ways, maybe it's science they'll have to answer it. And once it does, then that's something we, you know, we, we say, okay, how does this fit in what we already know from our faith? Same thing happened again when, you know, when we discovered that uh, scientists learned that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, but that the sun was. Lots of Catholics and others and scientists of all sorts had assumed that, you know, for centuries under the influence of Aristotle and uh, and others. And uh, so they had to say, okay, now we have this other information. It doesn't really contradict the faith at all. We just have to work with, with the new information we have. So it's, it's, you know, I, I believe that the book, if you read it carefully and you know, with open mind, you'll see that it, the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, if, if it were to be proven, does not undermine our faith. And, and what it actually does is press us to appreciate even more 
the immensity of our God, his omnipotence, his amazing creativity. And, uh, and it helps us to understand more what he has done on earth and why it's such an amazing thing. Our phone number is one 914 We have a call. Sandy is on the line. Hello, Sandy. Hello. Hi, I'm how are you? Complete... I'm fine. Did you have a question for Dr. Thigpen? Yes. Go ahead. Hey, I'm here, Sandy. Hello. I was a complete non-believer in uh, UFOs until I watched uh, a one-hour documentary on history television. They hired a private detective to look into this with completely neutral eyes and see what he would find. And uh, his determination was there might be the occasional visitor from outer space that's more or less the equivalent of uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition or or Columbus or something like that, or Leif Erikson. But uh, this all got mixed up with the Cold War and uh, military intelligence of the United States and uh, communist China. Sometimes what people see might be experimental aircraft from either side or uh, UFO, and uh, that all made sense to me. What do you think? Well, gosh, there's a lot in there. First of all, so you, we do have to be careful with History Channel things. They get, they get pretty wild sometimes. But, um, I mean, even more than having a detective like that, you, you finally have scientists coming out in the open. You have pilots. You have all kinds of military officials who said, yeah, this, this stuff is real, and it is not the things that we're seeing do not follow the laws of physics as we understand them to be. Uh, they, they're exhibiting characteristics that is so far beyond anything we can do. Some of it seen could be, you know, so, so, so secret stuff that we have. I think it's interesting that one of the, the better known cases from recent years where the, the Navy pilots had, had seen these things and came up alongside the craft and that kind of thing, that when they were brought back, they said that uh, they were not debriefed by anyone saying, this is our stuff, it's secret, so you can't talk about it, uh, which is what always happens, he said, in the past, when they came out or came across something in the sky that was a secret project, you know, of, of our own, craft of our own, they would be told they'd be brought and debriefed immediately. You can't talk about this because it's it's ours. But but anyway, um, there's, just, there's just so much evidence that there's some kind of there there. The Pentagon is finally saying they're there. We don't know exactly what they are. You finally got some scientists, including uh, uh, Dr. Avi Loeb, who's a uh, 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 Harvard uh, astronomer, astrophysicist, I think, who is leading a scientific effort to start looking more into the skies. Um, but the things, I guess I would say this, one thing we have to keep in mind, that the kind of characteristics of flight that we're seeing in propulsion that are just beyond anything we, we know from physics, like instantaneous acceleration of movement, um, making changes and at multiple hypersonic speeds, making changes at right angles real quickly, um, going from space to air to the, to the ocean without any, you know, just the same craft going quickly, things going under the ocean uh, at several times the speed of sound. I mean, we could go on and on, but 
some of those same characteristics were observed back in the, the 1940s and 50s and 60s at a time when we, I think we can say for sure, we didn't have that and the Russians and Chinese definitely didn't have that. So there's just coming at it from so many angles. There's so many things that, you know, think presses to say, okay, it, whatever it is, it doesn't seem to be human control. And uh, back- again, I'm, you know, if, if any, if any particular UFO were proven to be, you know, have some prosaic explanation that the, my book doesn't fall or, you know, stand on that. I'm not arguing for the reality of, of UFOs. I'm just saying that given this, the conversation is coming up again. Let's talk about it in light of our, our Catholic faith. And that's what you have on the back of your book that I think is so helpful because, again, it is very important that we exercise the virtues in order to approach this topic like we do for anything, that we use the mind of the Church, and that is why I think your book is so important. You write this, the possibility that extraterrestrial intelligence exists is no threat to the Catholic nor wider Christian faith. We can remain faithful to the Church's magisterial teaching while accommodating that possibility, even if we never learn the truth about extraterrestrial intelligence until the age to come. The careful consideration of it in light of Catholic faith enriches our understanding of God, His redemptive plan, ourselves, and our universe. Then there are, I would say, nearly a dozen, maybe not quite, quotes collected from St. John Chrysostom, St. Albert the Great. We have Sir Isaac Newton, Padre Pio, C.S. Lewis, who I know is one of your favorites, and boy, did he have a great imagination, illuminated by that kind of science fiction thought as well. And you've quoted him quite a bit, and it's difficult because the lines are blurred, you know, the fairies and the the world of um, that he would write about in Lord of the Rings. So what's your take? on C.S. Lewis with this topic? He was, you know, I've looked very carefully at uh, Christian theologians of all sorts uh, over the last uh, hundred years. Um, and I think I can, you know, I can say very firmly that more than any other, he, even though Lewis was not actually a theologian, that's interesting to, to, to note that he is, sometimes he's scoffingly referred to by theologians as an armchair theologian because his the sealed actually was was Renaissance literature and medieval literature, that kind of thing. And yet the man was so brilliant. Uh, his imagination was so rich. Uh, his uh, powers of analysis were just remarkable. Um, and if you put all things together, things together, almost anything he decided to write about, he brought r- remarkable light onto it. And, and he wasn't Catholic. He was very close to Catholic in a lot of ways. Uh, he wrote a book that was basically about purgatory, for instance. He was at the Church of England, but a convert. And um, I think I can you know, firmly say that more than any other even well-trained theologian uh, of the 20th century, he, he wrote more about it. I think he had a deeper understanding of it. And, and his imagination was amazing because he didn't just write um, nonfiction essays about it. He wrote a, a science fiction trilogy in which he kind of used imagination to illustrate some of the possibilities he talked about in his nonfiction. Um, anyone who's familiar with him, you know, will know exactly what I'm talking about, the kind of man he was, the kind of mind, the kind of faith that he had. And so I, I was very happy to, to you know, rely on him in several places for, for looking at the possibilities and the implications. One of the quotes you have is, Our loyalty is due not to our species, but to God. Those 
extraterrestrials who are or can become his sons are our real brothers, even if they have shells or tusks. It is spiritual, not biological kinship that counts, which is very interesting. And again, that is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Just going to wrap up when we come back, we're, we're up against a break. one 914 is the number to call. And of course, we have the family rosary coast to coast with Father Rocky and we'll be honored to unfold your prayers. Dr. Paul Thigpen joining us this hour on Trending, internationally known speaker, best-selling author, and appointed by the USCCB to their National Advisory Council and has also served as a historian apologist. Joining us now, my name is Brooke Taylor in for Temory. Stay with us. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We have been receiving new, amazing, staggeringly beautiful, never-before-seen images from the universe from the James Webb Telescope and representing thousands of galaxies. Humankind has never seen these far-off systems. And the NASA scientist Jane Rigby, who's working with the James Webb Telescope, says that Everywhere we look, there are galaxies everywhere. That also speaks to the amazing, perfect order of God, of God's creation, and the psalm of the astronomer, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's been our topic this hour. Paul Thigpen is the author of a new book called Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Catholic Faith and the Mind of the Church. What does the church say about this? Is it is it okay to think about, well, as these discoveries continue to expand, what will be discovered? Will there be intelligent life? And in the opening of the book, I like this. Dr. Thigpen says, to those who would award me a tinfoil hat, I simply reply that you will need many more such hats for Augustine, Athanasius, Albert, Aquinas, Bonaventure, Galileo, Pascal, also Tennyson, Dostoevsky, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and countless more. So we've been going over what they had to say about this idea of life in the universe and God's creation and, and what might be out there and how, as a Catholic, we are to approach and process this. Hans is on the phone. We we just have a few more minutes here, but I want to get your take because we've, when, we've been kind of turning over different aspects of the image of God made in man and the theological implications of this. Hans, you have kind of a question on that line as well, right? About about the fall in UFOs? I do. Um, and thanks, Brooke and, and Paul, for you know addressing and uh, tackling this question. Um, very interesting. Um, my, my question comes from the fall and, and what we experienced from the fall. Um, and it seems, you know, through, you know, uh, you know, church understanding is that, you know, from the fall, we experienced death and that it, you know, extended out not just to humans, but, you know, to all of creation. And I think that's something that we experience, you know, um, as entropy, but, you know, through entropy, we see the death of, you know, stars and, and everything, you know, really around us kind of, you know, um, de-energizes and, um, and eventually, you know, um, dies out. And so, you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, how, you know, uh, other extraterrestrials and the evidence I've seen, you know, kind of begs the question, you know, because there's definitely that question now, especially with what the Navy pilots have seen. But, you know, if the universe had been, you know, subject to death and, and subject to entropy specifically, then I, I, I don't see how, you know, any, 
extraterrestrial, you know, could not be fallen. Um, and, and then questionable, you know, with questionable motives at that point, you know, why are they traveling? You know, I think the nearest star is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but seven, ten light years away. So that they expended a vast amount of energy and resources, you know, to come and travel. And, and if they are able to do so quickly, then they're opening wormholes of some kind. And so I'm kind of wondering, it's like, okay, well, w- w- the motives become very questionable, I suppose, especially, you know, if, if these creatures, you know, are... Um, or beings are are subject to entropy, are subject to the fall, are subject to free choice. You know, why are they coming? Well, there's a bunch of great questions there. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think all of us have to say we we don't know if they're coming, why they're here. A lot of speculations. So the one thing it seems to me is that because they've apparently been coming, if that's what they are, uh, for so long that. I, I don't think they're malicious because they haven't, at least the ones that, you know, we talked about a separate, separate group that seemed perhaps demonic, but if they have the kind of technology that they do, they, they could have taken over the world a long time ago. You know, it's, uh, if, if they're malicious, if their in, intention is hostile, could have happened centuries ago, apparently. But uh, to get to the other, other points there, uh, you know, we have to understand what exactly the church specifically says in scripture in particular about death entering the world through the fall we have to remember that um, the church has always said that the descendants of Adam, the first, our first parents on this planet, uh, fell, and that all of us then uh, have original sin as a result of that. But that doesn't say anything about um, whether another race might have fallen or not. And death and, and falling morally are different things. Um, the... Uh, the fact that I think, and I agree with Padre Pio, his comment that, that uh, I mean, he thinks it is, I think it could be, unfallen races that uh, they're not descended from Adam on another planet. Uh, so there's a possibility that, that they didn't fall. Uh, they could still experience death. That's, um, that, you know, that's not totally ruled out. Death could be that, that point at which for an unfallen race where God takes them from this world and into heaven. Uh, but I think um, we also have to keep in mind that that when we you know, we talk about how death entered the world, that Greek word cosmos in Scripture gets used in different ways in the Scripture. And sometimes it seems to mean the universe. Sometimes it seems to mean the planet Earth. Sometimes it seems to mean the human race. Um, you can see all those, those meanings popping up all the time. So I, I think probably there is something like, like death with other plants. Um, but what happened here didn't necessarily, I think, affect what happened on other planets. Um, seems to me all that the faith assures us of is that uh, that it did kind of ruin our planet and, and our species. And, um, you know, some people like Lewis, we mentioned C.S. Lewis before, have speculated that perhaps one of the reasons God has these great distances between us and, the, and what could be other races is that we're under quarantine. Um, he looks at the, the Bible verse that says angels have longed to look into the things that go on in, in the world here. Um, it's a possibility that he's actually trying to protect the, the others so that this, this um, virus of our moral uh, you know, decay doesn't, doesn't get beyond our planet. So I mean, lots of possibilities there. I think, you know, I think um, that what, you know, the points you made are, are, are good. And um, in the book, basically what I say is I don't think we can say absolutely it's this way that we have fallen races, we don't have fallen races, that we have races at all, but just how could those things be uh, accommodated within the Catholic faith? Look at that and say, 
So yes, there, there's much less, one of the things I learned is there's much less dogmatically defined by the church having to do with this issue than probably most people realize. Very little having to do with this issue directly um, has been defined by the church. But one of the things I hold on to um, that some theologians don't is that, yes, the church has said original sin, all the descendants of, of, of Adam. And so on this planet, that's really the case. But if you have somebody who's not descended from Adam, I'd say the possibilities are, are open. That's You've given us a lot to ponder, Paul, and I think that certainly with a topic like this, it reminds us of our littleness, which is probably a good thing, because as you say, humility is so important in approaching the topic of God's creation, of the question of, of, of what He has made, how He has made it. It's also remarkable to consider the order of God and the miracle of, of our planet, this perfect design by this perfect designer. God's fingerprints are all over in the perfect distance the Earth is to the sun in order for life to thrive, perfect mass, perfect rotation, per- perfect atmosphere, perfect land and magnetosphere. And in some ways, it's comforting when we do feel out of control because we see that supreme, omnipotent God, the order of His creation, penetrating every atom, providing for our every breath. It really is remarkable. And I know that you conclude your book with eschatology, the, the four last things. And we just have about a minute here, but could you kind of take us out with a few reflections on that portion? Yeah, it's again, this, this has to be speculation uh, within the bounds of, of Catholic theology. But uh, eschatology, of course, the, our, the last things and our, our final destiny is always uh, deeply related to to God's purpose in creating us and how he created us in the first place. So as we begin to consider different possibilities of how God might have created someone to to live in connection with him, what kind of spiritual status, I would call it, and then their moral status, according to whether they're fallen or not, then that begins to open up possibilities for eschatology. If if they were created uh, to live with him forever, as, as you know, we are immortal, as part of the, the image of God, then... Um, yeah, we should think about things like what, what would it be like to have them in heaven? If uh, if they're fallen, then we have to at least consider the possibility that some could be in hell. Um, mm-hmm. The notion of the judgment day, that, that gets really interesting. Is, is our judgment day that's described in Scripture simply for our race? Um, or or would it be a universal thing? There, the last things include a universal consummation of, of the universe, but it's not at all clear that that happens at the same time as the, the general judgment for the human race. Um, the church affirms both of those things, but says nothing about whether they there might be a, a long space between them. So anyway, what it does it just opens up again, makes us think about not just our own destiny, but uh, the possible destiny of, of other intelligent creatures. And this book offers much for contemplation and good, solid cosmic theology behind it and all that you put together. Dr. Paul Thigpen, congratulations on your new book. It's Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Catholic Faith. God bless you. I know the book is available now through Tan Books. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brooke. God bless you and all your listeners. Thank you. A big thank you to, again, Dr. Paul Thigpen, producer Jim Schraper. My name is Brooke Taylor. Today is Monday, which means the joyful mysteries as we contemplate the fiat of Our Lady, her trust in the unknown and the seemingly impossible the baby in her womb, the maker of the moon. God bless you, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Rosary Coast to Coast is next. <laughs>